So this is a very special day. It's the full moon of July, Asala Puja Day. And this is significant in Theravada's Buddhist tradition in which the, the, we assume that the, the history uh, that the Buddha actually gave his first sermon to his five colleagues at Saranat on this full moon of July. And so it's always a pleasure for me to expound on the on this sermon, the Four Noble Truths is generally known, because uh, it's been my whole guide to practice for 56, 57 years now. Because when I, I became interested in Buddhism, uh, when I was about 21, it was Zen, Zen Buddhism. And then in Theravada, Zen Buddhism mostly it challenges your intellect and does, it didn't prepare me for the kind of basic teachings that originated by the Buddha. So, so uh, when I went to live in uh, Thailand, uh, being a Theravada Buddhist country, it gave me opportunity to to practice. So the first year when I was a Samanera, I spent in a forest monastery <coughs> and, and uh, it gave me a kuti to live in as a Samanera, a novice monk for a whole year and gave me this opportunity for that year to meditate, use the Four Noble Truths as my basis for understanding uh, what the Buddha was really teaching. And I had this kind of investigating mind which likes to investigate things. What is, you know, what is the Dhamma that we take refuge in or Buddha and Sangha rather than becoming just a traditional Theravada monk according to custom. But, uh, you know, if this was the first sermon after enlightenment, we assumed the Buddha was fully enlightened when he gave this sermon. It was always very, uh, it was kind of mysterious and enigmatic that, that he would establish his first sermon on the, the experience of suffering. So, uh, <clears throat> this is difficult to explain. I remember in, in London, I was very active in the kind of interfaith movement years ago. And, uh, 
you'd have interfaith meetings and and uh, most religions are theistic so they come from you know a divine force a god that that loves us all and and so you know you're you're talking from this very high point about uh, God and love and it's very inspiring and you hear these uh, these kind of different religious leaders talking about God and love <clears throat> but I was brought up as a Christian so I had enough of that as a as a boy about God and love but I didn't find it in any practical way in my life you know I, I, I didn't you know it was inspired words and made you feel that that kind of inspiration and interest but it didn't know it didn't take you anywhere other than you didn't know what to what how to go about this uh, this uh, spiritual search so in the Four Noble Truths because the First Noble Truth is established on the, the most uh, ordinary human emotion that everybody experiences uh, is suffering and so it's easy to assume that the Buddha taught that everything is suffering which is rather a de depressing it doesn't inspire the mind everything suffering so you know make the best of it is kind of a defeatist uh, attitude doesn't particularly inspire the mind but in that year in this monastery in, in Nongkai uh, I was left pretty much to myself I had no knowledge of Thai language and um, the head monks there couldn't speak any English but I had this one book called Word of the Buddha which takes the, the Tripitaka which is very large and clumsy to carry around with you to just a very small pamphlet and it was uh, arranged by a German Bhikkhu in Sri Lanka, Nyanatiloka and it, it, uh, it uh, gives you all the, the important teachings from the from the suttas so because being alone for a year when you've never experienced that in your life you've always been with somebody there's always distractions available at every turn and so the um, I found you know being alone uh, at first was quite pleasant so I enjoyed a few days of bliss of just being alone and not having putting on any kind of social pressures and then uh, then I started and I learned this one system of meditation uh, of the Burmese method Mahasi Sayadaw system uh, when I was uh, a layman in Bangkok but it's a very strict kind of system rigidly bound to slow motion and labeling and so I found that this 
was, uh, you know, I could do this for a while, but 24-7, and uh, it was impossible. And, you know, so I could have periods where I did this formal practice, but then the rest of the time I didn't know what to do. And so, I found during this time, the first few months, this sense of, you know, just incredible anger uh, arising in me uh, that had nothing to do with the surrounding conditions. Because everybody was very respectful, they'd bring me good food every day, and so, you know, it wasn't anger toward anything immediate. Uh, the monastery or the other monks, but just repress, repress anger over, I was about 31 years old at the time. So, so that, just trying to do this, this uh, very effective method of mindfulness, I, you know, I didn't make me deal with anger very well because I didn't understand what was happening, and uh, so later on, I took to looking at this book called Word of the Buddha and studied the Four Noble Truths. And the first noble truth, as I've said before, was suffering or dukkha. So this was, uh, you know, and this is what I was experiencing suffering and uh, so that gave me a, a sense of looking at what's happening right now rather than trying to resist anger and resentment which was my habit, my personal habit, how I dealt with with negativity as a lay person for 30 years So this is like, uh, suddenly, the first noble truth, of, uh, you know, became some something of interest to me. Because, you know, I couldn't blame the suffering on the circumstances. I was beated, being treated well, and, and um, you know, I didn't have anything to complain about, and nobody was being mean or nasty to me in any way. And so, uh, you know, I began to, and then the, the, of the three insights into the first noble truth is to understand suffering. So then the English word understand, you know, I knew what suffering is, and, you know, you could, um, you know, but one, always tended to blame suffering, take it very personally, something wrong with oneself, or blame it on external conditions, on parents, on teachers, on uh, disappointing situations. And so the whole conditioning, cultural conditioning, was to blame my suffering on external causes. And, um, but in this case, it was to understand suffering, which was seemed to give a more profound meaning to the word understand, 
because suddenly, you know, I wasn't, I, I didn't want, I didn't feel a necessity to blame the suffering, but on anybody uh, around me or on past experiences because the suffering was apparent here and now, you know, is what I felt. Being alone, not understanding the customs, not speaking the language, having nobody to talk to, no uh, radios, no uh, iPhones, no television, just alone in this little hut in the forest with this one book. So it gave this book great significance in my life. Because I couldn't, I couldn't distract myself through reading literature or other things. I just had this one small pamphlet, really, on the Buddhist teachings. So I began to observe suffering as experience. And uh, and understand it in a way of like standing under it, accepting suffering, looking at it, rather than trying to get rid of it or blame the suffering on other causes. So you know, this this was quite a new experience, an insight actually. That these three aspects to the first noble truth are all insights. So I had this insight to, to just observe this, this uh, sense of misery, of loneliness, of, of uh, dread of the future, uh, resentments of, toward the past, and on and on like that. Then, then, uh, then the second noble truth, the third aspect to the first noble truth is suffering has been understood. So that was like a insight, affirmation, that you, you now change from just thinking of suffering in the, in the worldly way that I understood the word before into looking at understanding that suffering is, is about, you know, is a, an experience that we all have in this form as a human being. So, uh, and so I had this sense that suffering has been understood. So these four noble truths, that's the first noble truth and three aspects to every truth. <clears throat> Which is, the first aspect is what we might call in Pali, Bariyati Dhamma, it's the understanding the words that you know you, you get from the scripture. And then Bhattipata, uh, which is practicing, to, which is the advice is to understand suffering. And then the third insight is suffering has been understood. You know, I had this confidence that I now I understood what the Buddha meant by understanding suffering. I was looking here toward my mind itself toward my body and mind, rather than out there and, and, and trying to find the causes of suffering through uh, looking at things or remembering incidents, unpleasant incidents in my life. 
So then the second noble truth is, uh, was very powerfully appreciated because just like when, because many of us here have no, we're not brought up in Buddhist culture or Buddhist parents. So, you know, like many of us were brought up in a Judeo-Christian cultural setting, Western uh, scientific values were greatly generated towards science, psychology, and these are all outward going uh, subjects. So in Christianity, God is something out there, way above you, and uh, and so, you know, it's, that's why it's difficult to relate to that as anything practical other than you're told to strictly believe in it. But if you've got a skeptical tendency, then you, you can't just believe because your parents and the priests tell you you shouldn't. You know, you're fighting with yourself, endlessly trying to force the issue and uh, make yourself believe in things that don't make any sense to you anymore. So the causes of suffering so, suffering is a noble truth because it leads to non-suffering. Now that's very inspiring, non-suffering. So it's not a depressing kind of nihilistic teaching, everything is miserable and just get do the best you can with it, kind of resign to fate and and life in this mortal form, but um, you begin to, to you know, in, educate yourself by investigating the causes of suffering. So the causes of suffering, and there are three aspects. And the first aspect is, the causes are desire and three kinds of desire. Gama dana, which is sensual desire, which is easily understandable, what we see or hear, smell, taste, touch, and think, it, you know, it's an ob ob object of the senses. And when we see something beautiful, we're attracted to it, we desire it. When we see something ugly, we want to get rid of it whether it's what we see or think or feel, you know, we, we want the, the beautiful, the pleasant, and we don't want the, the, its opposite. So, gama dana, and this word dana is a Pali word, and desire in English always has a kind of pejorative meaning when we say someone has a lot of desires, it's, it's usually related to sensual desire, to sexual desire, or to some form of greed. So desire, in as I use that word generally as a layman, was more like uh, something you want to get rid of. Uh, and, and uh, you know, you're told to uh, you know, not, 
you know, you have all these moral precepts about restraint with action and speech and and trying to control these desires, sexual desire or or greed for things and and so you know, you're brought up in this very dualistic moral attitude about controlling, resisting and fighting the evil forces. And um but in in this case the Buddha you know gives you this invitation to understand three three kinds of desire. As I said before, Gamadana sensual desire and Vipavadana is a second one, which is very interesting because it's not, you know, we want to become enlightened when I ordained. I ordained, became a Buddhist monk because I wanted to be enlightened. I wanted uh, to uh, be free from suffering. I wanted to become an arahant. You know, I was never thought I was good enough to become a Buddha, but I thought maybe I could make arahant in this lifetime. So, desiring to, as you read the scriptures, you have these terms like stream enterer uh, and and. Uh, twice returner, non-returner, and completely liberated uh, individual called an arahant. So these words are inspiring and they make you want to attain them. And so with bhavadana, the desire to get something you don't have, to become something you're not, you know, and I could see, you know, that I could begin to witness that in myself, how my practice was was trying to get rid of the the bad side, the ugly side, and trying to get and find happiness, permanent happiness or bliss or enlightenment. And so, you know, in terms of meditation experiences, I had moments of great bliss of through. Uh, concentration practice on sending your consciousness to an object or to the breath and you get very peaceful that way and so you know I tried to develop that as my path but I found you know it was very temporary because it's easily disrupted and it made me cranky if people disrupted my meditation you know so I found that, you know, I was becoming incredibly selfish. You know, don't slam the door, be careful, walk sl silently, don't make a noise because I'm meditating. And I started witnessing, you know, putting it into words like that, began to see, you know, it was me as a person, a separate person, wanting to control the world so I could have this this blissful state and then feeling upset when the conditions changed and uh, doors were slamming and and people weren't nice to me anymore and things like that you couldn't you couldn't uh, you know sustain this this silent uh, concentration because it was easily distracted and also the big distraction to samatha is doubt and uh, and if you think a lot, you doubt a lot. And I was an obsessed thinker. 
So I get very concentrated and and then I think, is this first jhana? And then the whole thing would collapse. <laughs> is this first jhana is a doubt. And so, you know, I realized I was getting nowhere with that. But in terms of desire, this investigation of Baladana, I began to see how my ego was very much based on trying to get something I didn't have, an enlightenment I didn't have, so I wanted it. I wanted happiness, which I didn't feel. And so, you know, I'm meditating for happiness and for peace because I didn't feel happy or peaceful. So, I began to have a way of looking, understanding Bawadana, to get something I didn't have, uh, as something to let go of, because the insight into this second noble truth is to let go. So this was, um, I started practicing letting go, just saying the words when these desire, both sensual desire and and uh, desire for to get something I didn't have to let go of it, and then the third type of desire, vipuvadana, is uh, very much how I related to life, trying to get rid of things resist things uh, and uh, I could see so much of my life had been spent learning to resist life uh, trying to control it and uh, and resist the unpleasantness of it and so this gave me a, a reference to the desire to get rid of things I didn't want So these are these three kinds of desire give you you know both the 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 sensory experiences that we have through the eyes ears nose tongue body and mind and their objects you know so they depend on each other the eyes depend on objects you know to function or the ears to hear sounds and the nose to smell odors and things like that so the objects and the senses themselves, you know, are something that are in this continuous changing this. They try to sustain, uh, you know, a sensory uh, object and that the mind wanders away. And so, um, and just trying to get rid of bhavadana, trying to convince myself I, I don't care whether I'm enlightened or not, and that was, was not really letting go of it. Uh, it was, it was try, trying to perfect my personality, my ego, and because I was always operating from that position. How I interpreted Pali scriptures was from the ego, from the sense of me as a separate person, uh, trying to understand the translations of Pali into English. And so this insight, letting go, 
was very powerful because suddenly I had, uh, you know, I could actually use just the words, English words let go, as a kind of mantra. When I get stuck into uh, the, these three kinds of desires, you know, I began to witness desire as an object rather than as seeing it as a personal quality. So this is shifting from the very personal experience we have by identifying with the body. It makes everything incredibly personal. I am this, this physical body. I am this, I'm this gender. I'm a male. It's a male body. I'm a male. I'm uh, Caucasian. I'm a certain age. I'm an American, and on and all the identities that I acquire that create this sense of a unique separate self, a separate personality. And so just this investigation of Kamadana, Pavadana, Vipavadana, suddenly you're shifting from just trying to control desires and trying to make yourself, fix yourself into kind of a perfect ideal, you're actually letting go of things by just observing that gamma dana is like this, desire for sense pleasures is like this, rather than I shouldn't desire sense pleasures, I'm a samanera, I'm a celibate, I shouldn't desire things, and operating from the from the personality that I had to seeing that Gama Dana was, was uh, something that would come and go. It wasn't permanent. Bawa Dana, it gave, became confused because if I'm not trying to get enlightened, what am I doing? If there's nobody trying to get enlightened, who am I? And so I shouldn't even try to get enlightened. So I spent a year as a samanera because I didn't want to follow the desire to become a bhikkhu. <laughs> I was trying to be perfect. And uh, then the Whippawadana was was amazing inside because I saw so much of my repressed anger and resentment was I learned how to repress negativity from early childhood. I learned how to play the game of being a good boy and uh, repress the negative bad boy and so you know, always trying to get good grades in school, please your parents, and obey the teachers, would made me operate quite well in the worldly system. But it wasn't, didn't bring any real happiness because so much of your life you were resisting it, trying to to stop that that negative, say the bad boy side of the human psyche.
So then uh, I began to just practice letting go. For yeah, then I met this monk, a disciple of Lung Pacha, who was on Tudong, going on wandering. He came up to Nongkai and stayed at the monastery, and he's he's the one that told me to ordain as a bhikkhu and go and live with Lung Pacha in Ubud, who I never heard of before. So waiting that year in Nongkai was one of, you know, a great gift to me because no, at that time in Thailand, like in Bangkok, nobody mentioned Lung Po Cha. You know, it's completely unknown in, in the central Thailand at that time. It was 1966, 67. So, um, I asked my Upachaya, the head monk of the province in Nong Kai, he ordained me as a bhikkhu and sent me off to live with Lung Po Cha. And so from there, the third noble truth, I had, you know, this is how I see it, remembering the past, was I had insight already into the first two noble truths. So when Lungpa Cha invited, you know, the first month I was there with Lungpa Cha, there were two Thai monks who could speak English who could translate. So Ajahn Chah would invite me to his kuti every afternoon and and then read, you know, through the translation, he'd discuss, he'd tell me what, how he taught and and he, he seemed to appreciate my insights. You know, so it gave me a lot of confidence in Ajahn Chah as a teacher. And the first monk I met who I really regarded as, as a teacher, as my teacher. So that's why I stayed there, why I stayed at Wat Pong. And during the year, those ten years with Lung Po Cha, you know, I, he was constantly speaking from the Four Noble Truths position, so I could really appreciate when I learned to understand the language, you know, I would I was mesmerized by Lung Po Cha's talks. He was only 48, 49 years old at the time and and I was, you know, really found his, his he was giving reflections every morning, every evening and uh, and that kind of teaching, the way he told me to be the puto, the witness. So he cha I changed the mantra from let go to puto, which is a, the way the Thais pronounce Buddha. They say puta. So, you know, for a Westerner, you think of, it sounds a bit funny. So puto sounded a bit funny, but uh, that's what I was hearing. And so I use Puto as a as a kind of method, a mantra, to let go once you know, because it's it's a witnessing position. 
not a controlling position. Like Buddha is knows the way things are. Buddha is this knowledge, knowing the way it is. It's like this. So you have these teachings like all conditions are impermanent. So the Buddha actually gave forth the ultimate teaching. All conditions are impermanent. All Dharma is not a person, not a personal sense. So it's anatta, no self. Which sounds very dogmatic, you know, absolutely no self, as if, and that's how the Westerners oftentimes interpret anatta, rather than all Dhamma is not a person, not a separate self. So, uh, then during those ten years I had insights into, into Niroda, just through the, through the encouragement of, that Lung Pao Cha gave me. And uh, so Niroda is the end of suffering. That's the third noble truth. And so Niroda means, you know, they're, 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 the first noble truth is suffering. Niroda is the end of suffering. So training as a Buddhist monk in, in Wapapong gave me many opportunities to suffer because you feel very, you know, the only Westerner in this Thai monastery in a remote part of Thailand, and then you're, you're uh, trying to learn a language, yet used to the, vin, the very strict Vinaya practices and and uh, food was, you know, at that time was quite just a village diet, really, from local villages. And, uh, you know, so, you know, I could create suffering around all of this, the frustration of not understanding what's going on most of the time, being a, a subject of interest, everybody wanted to look at me, and because I was a, a, an American bhikkhu, which was totally new experience for everyone at that time, and, and uh, trying to, and, and then in Northeast Thailand, they speak a dialect of Thai, Northeastern Thai, Lao, Lao language, more like Lao. And um, so you're learning Thai from a tape recorder, I had a tape recorder, central Thai, like what they speak in Bangkok. But all you're hearing is Isan Thai, Northeast Thai. <laughs> so, you know, it's a total language, like Chinese. So you, you have to develop a new sense for sound, for tones of words. So, you know, it was a very frustrating experience for me. And then the Thai monks were they're very rigid about how you had to sit and carry yourself and your, your right place in the line, in the queue, and everything was, you know, it was constantly being admonished. 
and uh, you know, being a 31, 32 year old American <laughs> male that wanted to do things as he as he felt was very, you know, really contrasted with uh, creating negative states of mind. When Lung Po Cha's advice to me was to be the puto, the witness to the frustration or the aversion or the anger or the resentment that would arise during this training period. So that I found really helpful because I could witness, I could actually observe my anger or frustration and with this attitude of letting go. And uh, so I used that, you know, and, and, uh, and then as I became more adjusted to the system and understood the language, then of course I, I fitted in, I learned to adapt and fit into the new uh, customs and the restraint of Vinaya. Uh, which was, you know, gave me a new experience with, with being, uh, being very responsible for what I said and how I used my body for action and speech. So I began to experience by observing things, by witnessing by this puto witnessing practice, I began to observe <clears throat> frustration arise. And then you don't try to let go of it in the sense of getting rid of it. You just let it be what it is. You, you sit with it until it ceases. So I began to actually witness the end of suffering in little ways, in just moments where, you know, something that I would really wind me up and I'd get carried away with either following it or trying to resist it. I became just a, a passive witness, a muto, to the existing conditions and its presence is like this. And then it, it was patience, and acceptance, you know, it goes to cessation, it goes to Niroda. So then I had a, the experience of Niroda, the end of suffering. So that's to be cultivated. And that's the insight into Niroda, to cultivate what they call Bhavana. Which leads to the third noble truth, uh, fourth noble truth, the what they call the Eightfold Path, the way of non-suffering, and that uh, way of non-suffering is right understanding, right intention, right act, act, right action, right speech, right livelihood. Uh, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. 
So eightfold path sounds rather, you know, when when the you're thinking in steps, like first step, uh, right understanding, as is samaditi, right understanding. So you understand the words, and then through trusting your insights into the first three noble truths, you have insight into right understanding. What that is, it isn't, it isn't verbal. It's not like a, now I understand everything and I can you know exactly what right understanding is and describe it to people. But you know that this, this uh, path, this Eightfold Path is really where the consciousness is aware of itself. It's no longer just going out towards objects and being aware of objects. You know, so our, usually our mindfulness is going to objects, being aware of them. When you're driving a car, you have to, you know, be aware of the stop signs and pedestrian crossings and things like that. That you're sending consciousness through the, through the sight, through the eyes, through the object, in order to survive physically, to, to not hurt yourself or anyone else or demolish the car. So, uh, this uh, sense of samaditi then begins to really, uh, rather than seeing it in eight steps, you know, it's called eightfold, so it's, it's not like steps. So they come together, everything comes together with samaditi then the right speech, right action, right livelihood, and so forth, uh, operate from that. The Vinaya is, is a form to help us be mindful of speech and action. Helps us to, you know, give us boundaries for what we say and what we do with our bodies. But the intention for Vinaya is not to just make yourself controlled and, and bound to precepts, but to encourage awareness, sati sampajanya. So you see Vinaya as much more a helpful tool rather than a rigid set of precepts that you have to obey in order to be right. You begin to understand the wisdom uh, why the Buddha did establish the Vinaya tradition. So then the Niroda, the end of suffering, you know, like in the present situation I'm in now, the uh, having an old body and uh, I've, I've just recovered from the COVID flu all these are suffering having a, an old body that doesn't operate all that well and then getting the flu was desperately trying to prevent myself from being 
infected by COVID, there's so much protect people protecting me from this this dreaded pandemic. And was it suffering? Was COVID pandemic suffering for me? You know, people are interested. You know, somebody's meditating all these years. How do you deal with with COVID? And you know the unpleasantness of it was just natural. The body's like this. It's a sensitive form. It's it's going to feel good. And it's going to feel terrible according to conditions. Old age, sickness, death is is just a part of the karma of a human body. It, once born, it's just going to get older and get sick and die. You know, so the identity, that's the nature of the, these forms that we give so, so much importance to and identify with. And that's why there's so much suffering in affluent countries like Canada and the United States, in Britain, you know, Western European countries, very affluent countries, well run, and still there's an enormous amount of mental anguish and despair and anxiety because of the identity with the body. The body can be threatened by outside sources. It's a very delicate form, easily damaged. And so, uh, you know, we we learn to be very, try to protect ourselves. But when we do get sick, you know, do, did I suffer when I had COVID? I felt the discomfort of it, but I didn't create suffering in my mind. So that was the difference, you know, the body is going to feel pain and that's it. You know, it's it's a painful condition, basically. The human form is totally sensitive form, out in the open in space, and it's going to suffer the changing conditions that we have no control over. So, is the end of suffering that you don't feel any more pain, or, or? don't suffer from diseases, you don't create suffering around the way things are. You, you, you're, you're letting go, you're, you're not attached to conditions. You experience them and they arise and cease, but you're no longer bound, you're no longer blindly clinging to them, holding on, grasping them, and trying to control them, get rid of the unpleasant ones, and try to hold all the good things to try to keep them. So Western society, it's a good sign, like the monastery here at Tisarana. It's a good sign that this, you know, this Buddhist monastery has a, suddenly appeared in, in this part of Canada, because it is a, a sign that it gives promise and hope to life. There is a way to end suffering. Just trying to find the perfect government, the perfect politicians, the perfect prime minister, the, the perfect systems, and uh, trying to resolve 
all our suffering through psychology, you know, are good attempts, you know, they're all ideals to to try to create democratic free societies is a is a beautiful ideal. But an ideal doesn't isn't the way life is. Life as we experience is not not for anyone is it ideal. It's the way it is. It's changing. And so, uh, it is, when we, all conditions are impermanent, sape, sankara, nature, that teaching I've always referred to, and uh, all conditions are impermanent because they are. That's their nature. So sankharas are, you know, unstable, uncertain conditions that change, that we try to find certainty and stability and safety in things that are their very nature is to change. And that's why we, we get cynical or bitter about life because it's just it just doesn't seem fair that we, you know, when we we work hard and pay our taxes and all that, then we should suffer. You know, on a logical, reasonable level, it's true. You know, you should, you know, everybody should be rewarded for being good and punished for being bad. But that's not always the way things are. And then the biggest fear is death itself. You know, what happens when we die? And I'm sure Ajahn Viridhamma has been asked this many times. <laughs> I have, certainly. <laughs> because everybody's interested, you know. And, you know, I usually say, well, I haven't died yet, so I don't really know. <laughs> <laughs> but there are various versions, you know, that if you've been good, you go to heaven. If you've been bad, you go to hell. And uh, then there's reincarnation which is an Asian teaching and uh, if you've been a really nasty human being you reborn as a toad or a snake <laughs> something to pull up. <laughs> and if you've been very good you go to heaven and uh, Different in, in Buddhist cosmology, there's different levels of heaven you go to. So these are all heavens; they're always desirable, and the what they call the abaya states are all undesirable. So, and just in the cosmology, the tradition, uh, Indian cosmology, you know, rebirth—they call it reincarnation or you can call it rebirth, which is a more, is a much better word actually. Because we're constantly being reborn all the time. As you begin to observe, be the puto, the witness to the way things are, you notice you just see how many uh, cessations of personal feelings cease, and then you're reborn again as something else. 
you know, so it's learning to really let go of sankharas. Not you're not getting rid of them, it's not annihilation. It's not not trying to control by by uh, precepts anymore, but it's through seeing for yourself the suffering that is the result of clinging to sankharas. All conditions are impermanent. And Dhamma is not a person, a separate person. So it's, uh, and that word Dhamma, when we chant in the morning, evening pujas, we translate, when we talk about the qualities of Dhamma, we say Santitiko Dhamma, which translates into English as apparent here and now. And what is apparent here and now? And so you, you begin to investigate. Apparent here and now is, is you know, whatever, whatever state you're in, whether you have COVID pandemic flu or you, your perfect physical health or everybody loves you or nobody likes you, What's apparent here and now under all conditions is you're conscious, you know you're conscious. That's apparent here and now. That's one of the qualities of Dhamma. So Dhamma is here and now. And it's timeless, Sakalika Dhamma. Try to imagine timelessness. You know, you can image, imagine, imagination is all about time, what arises and ceases. Timelessness, you can't imagine. So, it, you know, we call it uh, eternity, which oftentimes in the West is translated time that never ends. But is eternity, timelessness here and now, and so in Naroda, you real, realize this timeless, timeless reality. You can't find it, you can't imagine it, but it's apparent here and now, timeless. Ehi pasiko, like it's a, in Pali, to come and see for yourself. It's like being invited to no, come in, look right now, here and, here and now, timeless. So it's it's not like a hidden mystery that only highly advanced, spiritually advanced people can realize. Open Nayaka Dhamma, you're going, you're, you're not, you're, you're going inward rather than sending your your consciousness through the senses to the object. You're still conscious, but it's not, there's no object in it. You can't objectify consciousness. Naroda has no words. You call it emptiness, which, you know, makes it sound rather negative. Or you put it in terms of bliss. 
peace, bliss, the more useful words for describing Niroda, the end of suffering. And then Bhajatang Vaitidapovanu, he's the last quality to be experienced individually. So this afternoon one of the monks was talking about me being able to just zap you and make you enlightened. <laughs> and it's not that I don't want to do that, it's I can't do it. <laughs> so even the Buddha, you know, according to the scriptures, couldn't do that. So instead of zapping the five colleagues, he gave them the Four Noble Truths. So this is a celebration of this uh, first teaching of the Dhammajaka Sutta, which I encourage you all to, to use and investigate. It's an inquiry into existence, into experience, and uh, conscious awareness. So it's not just memorizing Four Noble Truths and thinking you understand them. But, you know, what is Naroda in the reality? What is the reality of Naroda? Or the Eightfold Path? Or what is the, what is Dukkha? Why is it foremost in the first, first position of the Four Noble Truths? So the end of suffering is here and now, apparent here and now. And then we use the word Dhamma, refuge in Dhamma. So I offer this as a reflection for today.